Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. So, Manya, if there's one type of segment that I love on People of the Pod, it's the Manya on the Street segments. And I understand this week you did Manya off the street. Yes, we did uh, Manya in the House, uh, as one of <laughs> our producers dubbed it. Uh, and we spoke to several Jewish leaders about how this Passover is different from all other Passovers. Sevi, hmm. what did you talk about? Well, if there's one thing I love to nerd out on, it's Israeli political developments. And I actually had the uh, pleasure and privilege of speaking with probably one of the most senior, most respected reporters currently based in Israel. That's David Halbfinger, the Jerusalem Bureau Chief of the New York Times. Excellent. Oh, I'm jealous of that conversation. Well, uh, with this Passover being different from all other Passovers, one way it'll be different is we are taking a two-week hiatus. And our listeners, we will be back with you on the week of April 20th. But for right now, let's hit the show. On last week's episode, we brought you a story about political intrigue in Israel. Just after we recorded it, a huge portion of the intrigue evaporated. And now, after three elections and more than a year, Israel appears on the verge of having a government again. Joining us now to discuss what these developments mean for Israel and how we as Americans should think of them is David Halbfinger, Jerusalem Bureau Chief for the New York Times. Before taking up the Jerusalem Post in 2017, David oversaw the Times coverage of the 2016 presidential election and served as deputy national editor for the paper. David, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. I want to start with a translation question, not linguistic translation, but journalistic translation. Because if I may, in a sense, that's what you do as Jerusalem bureau chief. You translate the stories coming out of that part of the world for an American audience. And and I would imagine it has to be so challenging to translate the ins and outs of Israeli politics, since the system is so different from what we're used to in the U.S. How do you explain it? concisely for American readers? That's a really good question. I I hadn't actually thought about it just this way, but translating Israeli politics, you know, because it's so different from American politics, the multi-party system, the coalition, and also the feeling that nothing ever is actually done or finished or resolved. (laughs) You know, all of this is somewhat alien to me. It's kind of like um, growing up as a Jew myself, like, uh, you know, able to follow the prayers and everything, but not necessarily knowing every, you know, what every word meant. Mm. That was about my own grip on the Hebrew language. And you find when you get here that it really is worth not very much at all. You know, so there's a similar experience about Israeli politics. You know, I came here with all kinds of confidence in my political radar and, you know, judgment. But all of that was acquired in the United States in a two-party system, in, you know, a system where the math, the electoral math, the political math is just by definition a lot simpler than when you get to multivariable calculus over here. Um, So, yeah, it's difficult. Like you do as a journalist in anything, I've covered a lot of different beats, some of which were pretty technical and, and dry. And, you know, if it's a matter of explaining arcane things or complicated things to people, or trying to make dry technical things interesting to people, you always kind of, you know, that's the challenge of being a good journalist. It's actually kind of fun of it, right, is figuring out the right metaphor for the moment or, or for the complexity, um, something that makes it accessible. 
Yeah. So to bring us into kind of the meat of this week's news, last week, about an hour after I finished interviewing Chaviv Redigur of the Times of Israel about the standoff between Yuli Edelstein, who was then the speaker of the Knesset, the standoff between him and Israel's Supreme Court, the news eclipsed us. I'm sure as a, as a seasoned journalist, you've experienced that before when you, you know, pour effort into a story and then all of a sudden it's no longer as relevant as it once was. And we learned that Benny Gantz, who was then the leader of the Blue and White Party, had agreed, at least preliminarily, to sit in a unity government with Prime Minister Nitz and Yavina. that was a controversial decision on Gantz's part, right? Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what he promised he would never do, you know, under any of a thousand suns. I mean, like, you know, it was the last thing on earth he would have been expected to do if you believed what he had been telling his voters, right? It was all about he would not sit under a prime minister facing indictment. He would not do it. And then he did it. You know, he agreed to do it. If you were to hand out kind of preliminary scorecards or, or grades, how did Netanyahu do after these, you know, 16 months of elections? Well, look, he's on top right now, right? He's not, uh, it's not resolved. He's not won his term yet. There are things that still have to happen. Things could still happen to get in the way, but he is very much on top. Um, the guy who, you know, looked like he had a pretty decent shot at toppling him has given up effectively, blown up his own party, turned his back on his own voters, and made himself look extremely weak in the eyes of a lot of Israelis, like mainly the ones who voted for him out of desperation that he could do it. And now that guy is, you know, basically trying to get what he can, you know, to save face, to go into a Netanyahu-led government, at least in the short term, right? So all of this is really pretty great for a guy who's facing three, um, you know, three major corruption uh, counts in, uh, in in a trial that was supposed to have started earlier this month. Um, so, uh, you know, it's hard not to say um, game set and nearly match to, to, to Netanyahu. Pick your sport. Um, <laughs> the, the, you know, um, yeah. So, so uh, on the other hand, like he's, you know, like a, one thing about Israeli politics, like I said before, it's never over. I f it's extremely exasperating to watch, you know, because it seems like I remember, I'm going to give you another obscure metaphor. Like I remember in high school math, something called Zeno's paradox. Basically it said to get from here to there, first you have to go halfway and then you have to go halfway again. And this yeah. becomes infinitely halved, and t but you never actually get across the finish line. That's what it feels like here. <laughs> That's what it feels like with forming a government. Like we'll never get there. <laughs> you know, you kind of throw up your hands and say, okay, let me go to some other country. But so Netanyahu has really the upper hand. But let's see, what are they fighting about? So the big issue forming a coalition right now is over who will be the justice minister. And think about that. The justice minister... Um, you know, Netanyahu wants control over that. The justice minister will nominate the next state attorney. Um, and it's the state attorney's office that's responsible, among other things, for prosecuting Netanyahu. You know, so here, as somebody said to me, um, uh, where in a, you know, in what normal democracy in the world does a prime minister have a say in choosing the person who's going to have a big hand in deciding his fate? You know, so that's kind of the big issue, right? He wants to control the justice minister. He may give up on that. And, it, it, you know, they're fighting over 
the next speaker. It's presently Benny Gantz, but Netanyahu is demanding to put Edelstein back in. Yuli Edelstein, Gantz is opposing this. After all, you know that was the thing they went to war about last week, and 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 so Netanyahu is saying, okay, you don't want Edelstein, you can have Yariv Levine, who. Uh, the the lefties will say is like far worse. You know, he's the one who, when, you know, Edelstein was defying the Supreme Court, Levine was the one who went out and said, go ahead, Edelstein. You know, even if they order you to give up, just, you know, defy them, make the, make the Supreme Court send their bailiffs in to invade the Knesset. But like the, the clock is ticking and, and only in Netanyahu's favor, right? You know, the, the Gans's mandate expires April 13th. And then Netanyahu gets to take over. So that's Netanyahu, right? That kind of all encompasses a lot of the sense of how he has done, is doing in this, you know, ongoing, never quite getting there uh, challenge. I want to turn to Benny Gantz and try to grade him because, you know, you said about him a moment ago that, or at least that people are saying that he betrayed his voters. And that's probably, you know, the most damning thing that someone could say about a politician you could look at it a different way, though, right? Like, you could look at it and say, it seems like he's either going to be defense minister or foreign minister, you know, two of the most powerful positions in the cabinet. He may yet pull out justice minister for his party, which would be huge. He may yet pull out speaker of the Knesset for his party, which would be huge. And if this whole kind of coalition agreement is to be believed, not that there is an agreement yet, but the notional kind of agreement, he would essentially send Netanyahu off to retirement in a year and a half. It's a big if. People are skeptical whether this would actually kind of come to pass. But, you know, is there a way of looking at it where Gantz gets a passing grade? Or or do you say, you know, after all this, you know, hoopla, there's no way to say that he, you know, accomplished what he set out to do? I mean, I'm not the judge here. <laughs> it's the Israeli people who are. And, you know... Again, I leave it to others to to give grades. I would say, though, that, you know, yes, he can salvage something. Um, he can salvage the justice ministry. He could salvage, you know, uh, a choice of speaker. He could he could he could get, you know, uh, a, a really important position in a Netanyahu led government. And he can, you know, hold out hope that, you know, a rotation actually takes place in a year and a half. Um, you know, that's a long time. I, I, I just think that, you know, with Netanyahu, uh, it's all about the possession arrow, right? Another sport. <laughs> um, and and it's, 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 it's pointing to him. It is pointing to him now. It has been. It will for a long time. I think with Netanyahu, you know, tomorrow is another day. And, uh, you know, so, so if, if the point of Gantz and his whole candidacy was to get Netanyahu out. Instead, he's, you know, it's hard to escape the conclusion that instead he's managed to um, to keep Netanyahu in, at least for a while. Um, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not. Um, you know, there's, there's a coronavirus. We haven't talked about coronavirus. Honestly, you know, uh, since last week, I've been reporting on nothing but corona. I haven't even touched Israeli politics. Um, you know, uh, and that's what's occupying everybody. And that's like the stated reason for this whole, you know, emergency unity national government. Um, you know, it's the reason Gantz gave for going in with Netanyahu, right? Um, and yet it's kind of funny that, you know, here we are 
with people dying quite literally um, and the numbers of cases climbing and they're arguing about, you know, not where to put test kits and ventilators and hospital beds uh, and who should be the health minister so much, but about the justice minister. Yeah. So it must be said, this isn't a chess match. It isn't a wrestling match. You know, it isn't tennis. It isn't basketball, whatever other sports we've gone through. It's far more consequential than that. And so we have to ask, is this in the best interest of Israel? Is this kind of unity government? You know, whatever someone may think of Netanyahu or to depersonalize it, whatever someone may think of a prime minister who is under indictment, you know, like you said, there is a pandemic raging. The Israeli government led by Netanyahu has taken swift and decisive steps to try to flatten their own curve, really acting, you know, well before people in America were taking it seriously, for example. There are all kinds of security kind of externalities that can come out of all of the uncertainty. You know, it's, it's not hard to imagine, you know, resurgence of terror attacks or an opportunistic Iran, if they get past their pandemic issues, trying to wreak havoc in Israel as a result of, you know, kind of attentions being divided and, and elsewhere. So I think it's I think it's really worth asking, is it in the best interest of Israel with all the baggage that may that may come with it for this kind of political governmental stability at this moment? I think it's a really good question. I confess I'm a little bit of a skeptic about unity government, you know, partly for reasons that you just outlined. I mean, it hasn't been a unity government that has responded to this so far. And they, you know, while it hasn't been perfect and there's plenty of criticism to go around, um, they they have done fairly well compared to some other countries, including my own. Um, you know, and I, I don't see any really compelling arguments as to why, even if the government were to change hands, um, you know, uh, the the newcomers wouldn't be able to keep up that that good work or maybe even improve on it. I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, I haven't lived through a unity government in Israel. So, you know, I don't have personal experience to harken back to, you know, nostalgically. Um, about wartime and, you know, and unity and coming together and everything. I think people are coming together already. I think the the atmosphere in politics is so poisoned, you know, um, around Netanyahu that I'm, I'm just not, I, I know that the, the polls show people want it, but I'm not, I'm just not convinced that, you know, uh, making a unity government is going to magically overcome all that mistrust, um, you know, between the people who want him gone more than anything and the people who can't imagine him ever leaving. Um, you know, so, I mean, yeah, I think unity will be a matter of numbers in the Knesset, but I don't, I don't really buy just yet that it will really change the public's mood all that much, uh, when it comes to politics. I think, um, I, I, I think, you know, they want to see the government functioning well, um, functioning, you know, in, in fighting this virus, in in keeping the, the death toll to a minimum, uh, in protecting their parents and their siblings and their sons and daughters. But, you know, I think, you know, we, we saw the formation of parliamentary committees um, that could be a check on the government. 
and you know uh, suddenly they were bringing to light certain things and um, you know all without real unity so um, uh, I, I don't know I, I, I mean you can have unity around a national purpose without a, a formality of a unity government I think you know the United States is showing you know you don't have to have a unity government to to have to get things done and also to have a robust debate about whether they're really being done well. Um, so uh, I don't know. I, I guess I'll have to live through this one and see. Well, we will all be living through it and we will be watching and waiting with bated breath as coalition negotiations proceed over the coming days and weeks. David Halbfinger, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you. Take care. Why is this Passover different from all other Passovers? Without our extended family, without a robust menu, in some cases without children to recite how is this night different, how can we make this celebration as meaningful as Passover's past? We asked three very smart leaders in the Jewish community for some guidance on that matter. Yair Rosenberg, a senior writer at Tablet Magazine, Rabbi Noah Marins, AJC's Director of Interreligious and Intergroup Relations, and Laura Shaw-Frank, Associate Director of Contemporary Jewish Life, who recently appeared in an ad campaign for the city of New York showing support for the Jewish community after a spate of anti-Semitic attacks. Here's what they said. Rabbi, thank you for joining us. How do we make this Passover more meaningful, or particularly meaningful, despite the challenges? There's something poignant and beautiful about the reality that difficult situations create greater meaning. No one wants a difficult situation, and certainly not a once-in-a-century type of catastrophe like the coronavirus crisis. But that also means that we are more raw, reflective, thoughtful in how we approach the holidays. Hmm. What would normally be a run-of-the-mill habitual behavior is now thoughtful in every single detail. How do you mean? It begins with, how do you prepare? (laughs) How do you shop? How do you clean? Nothing is available, (laughs) or it's hard to get, or there's a risk in trying to get it. Right. So... These are not normal thoughts that one has in the 21st century preparation of Passover where there's virtually nothing normally that we can't obtain. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then, more importantly, there is the missing humanity. The missing humanity in the biggest sense that we know that people are dying We know that people are fighting for their lives. We know that eventually, if it hasn't already, reach us. We -hmm. will know someone if we don't already know someone. Mm -hmm. How can anything be normal under those circumstances? Laura, in the early part of this year, uh, the Jewish community, particularly here in New York, were facing a number of anti-Semitic attacks. You were part of an ad campaign that encouraged and comforted the Jewish community. 
And now all of us really are under a different kind of attack. And I'm curious how you will approach both of these situations at your Seder table. Something that I've learned in this moment is how interconnected the Jewish community is. Mm -hmm. And that interconnectedness, the fact that we're all at each other's celebrations and all at synagogue with each other and all interconnected in so many ways in, in my children's day schools. We are in the, um, the community that had the first outbreak in New York. I live in that community here. And the fact that everyone is so interconnected leads to a higher rate of infection no matter what. And it feels so wrong that anti-Semites are going to, and they already have, flagged Jews as being kind of the purveyors of the virus, which is such a trope in Jewish history, you know, that Jews are constantly being uh, seen as infectors, as the bringers of the plague, but that we should be seen as the purveyors of the virus, as the people who are bringing it about when really the fact that it's infecting our communities in this incredibly powerful way has to do with the success of our community. Hmm. It has to do with how beautiful the Jewish community is and that there's so many touch points that our community has with each other. Yeah, yeah. How do you address that at the Seder table? How do you address that, you know, in the framework of Passover? I'm a Jewish historian, and I always like to raise moments in Jewish history um, at my Seder. There are two particular kind of anecdotes that I like to think about. The first one is a Haggadah that I always bring to the table that is a survivor of many incidents of anti-Semitism. Um, it's the Sarajevo Haggadah. And obviously, I don't have the real one because it was actually written in 1350 around. We're not really sure when. And um, it survived the Spanish Inquisition. Wow. and ended up in the Ottoman Empire, where it was reviewed by the Inquisitor. And in actually in the back of the, of the Haggadah, the Inquisitor signed and wrote, reviewed by me, this, you know, it's not blasphemy, we can keep it in existence. Thank goodness. <laughs> and then it ended up, it's just a crazy thing. It ended up in the Holocaust. It was in the um, Bosnian National Museum. And talk about interreligious cooperation and interconnectedness, the Nazis wanted it. They wanted the Haggadah to send to their Museum of the Lost Race. And the curators at the museum knew that they wanted it. And they made a plan. So this Muslim curator of the museum hid the Haggadah in his pants. And he jumped out the window of the museum and rode his bicycle to the outskirts of Sarajevo and hid the Haggadah in a mosque and it survived the war in a mosque. And so I have a, a copy of that Haggadah, and I insist on showing it to everybody, and I insist on telling the story of it, because to me, it's, it's got the whole package. It is a story of survival despite unbelievable anti-Semitism. It is incredibly beautiful. It's got gorgeous calligraphy and paintings, and it has scenes from the Bible in it, and it also has this wonderful image of, of love between different groups of people. My children will roll their eyes as they do every year, but I know that somewhere it's actually, you know, going inside. So Yair, how are you going to do the Seder? I mean, are you going to be just two at a table or who's going to gather this year for you? 
Yeah, so this is one of the challenges I think that a lot of people are facing, which is that uh, it's going to be difficult. Some of them are putting on a Seder alone. Some of them are, you know, by themselves, just themselves. Some of them may be just their immediate family or just their husband or their wife. Um, and this can be very intimidating and scary. And uh, um, hopefully uh, there are lots of good groups that are putting out resources to help people with that. Um, I saw something by my friend Rabbanit Leasarna, a minimalist guide. Uh, to preparing for Passover, I think it might be called. I would encourage people to Google that if they're looking for it. There's some other stuff circulating. Tablet is working on some really good resources as well. Um, and so, you know, we, at our place, it's just going to probably be me and my wife. Um, and, uh, of course, she's a Jewish studies professor, uh, a Talmud professor, and I'm a Jewish journalist. So we have a lot of content to work with. Not everyone is that the case. And so hopefully, like, those resources can be really helpful. Um, I think it's important for people to both, you know, take it easy on themselves and recognize that, you know, it's a lot that is being asked of you and that you shouldn't beat yourself up over it not being the perfect version of the Seder that you hope it will be. But also look upon it as an opportunity to start working on building your own Seder down the line. It's not how you would have asked to have to do it, right? But it is perhaps something that you can then take certain things from for the future. Um, and like so like learn a few of the songs that you didn't already know. Um, there's lots of great recordings online. For the launch of Tablet Sagada, if you go to Tablet's YouTube channel, you'll find that they forced me to sing a couple of the songs. Um, and so you can hear me singing them, just my voice, um, on their YouTube channel. Um, if you want the most hysterical version of any Passover song, I highly encourage you to look up Jack Black's rendition of Chad Gaja because it exists and came out this past year, and it's insane. These things can bring some joy. I think a sense of humor is a good thing to have at the table and to like sort of recognize that. I think also people will, um, depending on your level of observance, will be, you know, zooming in, uh, to people's siddharim so they don't feel as alone. Um, I know that in the Sephardi community in some places, rabbis have allowed you to turn on Zoom before the holiday and then do your Seder while, you know, not touching your computer just to be in touch with people. I also know some people who will start just earlier before the holiday officially begins so they can use all their electronics if they normally wouldn't. Um, and then be in touch and do parts of the Seder or certain things with their families. Um, and I think all of those are things that are beautiful. So what words do you have? What can you suggest to people, albeit smaller uh, groups of people who will be celebrating Passover this year? What can you suggest as, kind of, as guidance to spur a meaningful conversation and a meaningful exchange, despite the lack of people at the table? When you are in these kinds of situations, your intellectual and emotional sensitivities are heightened. And you have the opportunity to see texts in a way that you've never seen them before. And although our practicalities of Passover have been hampered, our values have the potential to be heightened. Every year at our Seder, I start up with the assembled. I poke them and say, what does this mean? This year we are slaves. Next year we will be free. Really? <laughs> at an American Jewish table? Mm -hmm. Who is sitting at this table for whom that is real? And we often have the conversation and bring in the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King in his famous letter from the Birmingham jail, which I embedded in the reading that we created and the responsive prayer that is at AJC.org, a 
Haggadah supplement. And that concept is that just like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said in his letter from the Birmingham jail, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere, and that we are inextricably linked, that's what it means that we say today we are slaves, next year we will be free. So for us, this has deeper meaning. It's not only that we are quote unquote enslaved by this coronavirus, by this epidemic, but more than ever before for so many of us at the Passover table, we are inextricably linked. Mm -hmm. with everyone around the world. We are learning the lesson that no human being is an island unto themselves and that we cannot, even in our distancing, forget for a second how connected we are because it is our connection that has forced the distancing. So what advice do you give to those who are celebrating in solitude? So I think that my headline would be, whatever Seder you do is a good enough Seder. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important because this is a holiday where we get very bent out of shape about it being the greatest thing and that our tables have to be beautiful and the food has to be a certain way and we have to make all the special treats that we have every single year and we have to have grandma's Haggadah and grandpa's kippah and this and that and the other thing. And, and this is not that year. This is a year to have the good enough Seder. And um, I think that's really important to just like let ourselves have that grief that it's not really going to be what it usually is like. At the same time, I think that there's a lot of ways that one can make it meaningful. If you live in an apartment, keep your door open. See if you have neighbors on your, on your floor who are also going to be having satyrs and see if you can maybe, you know, have some singing that can maybe extend through the doors. Make sure you're getting outside. Make sure you're taking a walk. Um, FaceTime or Zoom with your families, um, either during the Seder, if you're not traditionally observant, or my family is traditionally observant, we're actually going to have a big Zoom at five o'clock right before the Seder and mm. do the special sections of the Seder together before the holiday starts. Mm -hmm. um, so doing those kinds of things is great. And I think just kind of recognizing that this is hopefully just going to be one of those weird years. And next year, we'll look back at it and say, boy, that was really something. And not that there isn't a great deal of suffering going on right now. There absolutely is. Yes. Um, but as a Jewish people, we're going to come out strong and intact. And we have to just kind of get through this year. It's not how we would have liked to be doing Passover. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that uh, there are ways that it can help us become stronger and more connected uh, to who we are as Jews. Mm -hmm. And to remember that Passover is in part, you know, a sort of, a story of hardship and overcoming hardship and that this is a hardship, but we will overcome it too. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk, or if you like, Seder Table Talk. Joining us at our tables this week is Amanda borshel Don, the Jewish world editor for the Times of Israel. Amanda, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Hi, Manya. Hi, Sefi. I'm going to tell you a story of something that happened this week. So I walked into our little grocery store and snapped on my disposable gloves while I was joking with the cashier at the door saying, ha ha, where are the eggs? 
I laughed to show her I was joking because she just sent out a bold-faced WhatsApp to our entire town that there are no eggs in the store, not even organic, and could we all just please stop asking her? She laughed at my joke, kind of. I guess I wasn't the first to make it, but I wasn't really joking, of course, and as I scanned the little market shelves, I hoped I'd still somehow find some eggs. There weren't any, as expected, but what I hadn't expected was a run on garlic. Now... Anytime there was a snowstorm in Indiana, people would rush to buy four things. Toilet paper, eggs, milk, and bread. Here in Israel, where there are a lot of families such as mine, you know, six kids and two dogs, one of them who you can probably hear, where we are feeling the run on the first two, toilet paper and eggs. But curiously, there's still plenty of milk. And frankly, before Passover, I'm not sure anyone is buying much bread. But no garlic. When I got back home from the market without eggs and without garlic, I saw that the neighborhood WhatsApp group was advertising a new crop of farmware. Among them was garlic at the reasonable price of nine shekels a kilo, thinking, wow, a kilo is a lot, but okay, everyone's hoarding a bit of food these days. I wrote the farmer and asked for a whole kilo of garlic. She immediately wrote back saying that there was a 10 kilo minimum, 10 kilos of garlic, but then I imagined a life without garlic, and I said, what the hell? I ordered it. So yesterday, I picked up my sheaf of garlic, and I'd imagine getting some kind of like cardboard box filled with white, gleaming, delicate skin garlic heads. But instead, I got a fragrant, massive, dirty, green, leafy bundle that had about 40 garlic heads. So of course, I took a photo and put them up on uh, Facebook. And I joked, vampires check, what's next? Ha ha ha. So last night, my oldest son and I watched a YouTube video, how to braid garlic the easy way. And we plucked off all the extraneous greenery. My little brother had sent me a recipe for the greens. And we braided them together and made two kind of artistic little braids. So when I spoke with my mother-in-law last night, she'd seen my Facebook post and suggested I freeze some of the clothes. In the background, Aunt Huva, whose house she's staying in, called out and said, I should grind them up in olive oil first to make my own garlic spice cubes. Aunt Huva has sensible suggestions in all possible situations. Take it from me. But I realized that my olive oil is running low along with almost everything else in my kitchen. So searching through the neighborhood WhatsApp group, I saw that I could order other stuff from farmers, and I did. So this morning, after carefully washing and roasting my garlic leaves and then cooking them again in the pressure cooker, because those suckers are tough, I received word that my vegetable order had arrived. We walked over to a smiling neighbor and picked up our three cabbages, two lettuces, basil, parsley, celery, and mangled leaves. About an hour later, another neighbor dropped off our shared order of four boxes of strawberries, three small pineapples, a box of mini peppers, and some cherry tomatoes. My husband doesn't know it, but on order, we still have a local farmer's goat cheese, another farmer's olive oil, and some homemade gefilte fish. But... Miracle of miracles, a neighbor announced in the afternoon that she was organizing an egg delivery if she could get to 150 flats of 30 eggs each. So I immediately ordered four flats, and within two hours, she'd reached 400 flats. That's 12,000 eggs before closing the list to many others. 
I happily paid for our 120 eggs and live in hope that they'll arrive before Shabbat, or at all, because apparently we're still missing some bureaucratic permissions. Now, I'm the hunter-gatherer of the family, and to tell you the truth, my husband is really not happy with my new farm-to-table purchases. But as I triumphantly told him I'd solved our egg problem, he told me that he'd also asked a friend's wife who works at a supermarket in Jerusalem to put some to the side. He'd just received word that she was holding four dozen eggs for us. Should I tell her to put them back, he asked. I turned to him, and super nerd that I am, I said, no, they'll keep. Better four dozen eggs in hand than 120 in the bush. How about you, Manya? Well, at our Seder table, in addition to the usual topics of conversation, such as the four questions and the endless rounds of Dayenu, we will be talking about baseball. I love baseball. (laughs) I know you do, Sefi, as do I. And we're usually reveling around this time in the opening day festivities right about now, sizing up the players and the teams, trying to predict how the season will unfold, who we'll be cheering for in the playoffs during the high holidays. That is obviously not the case now. We are watching now our old World Series victories for all of our favorite teams preserved on DVD for repeated viewing during times like these. (laughs) But when life as we once knew it resumes and baseball season does finally begin, who will stand at those games as heroes? I'm referring to that moment in between innings or after the national anthem or the seventh inning stretch when everyone in the stands is asked to salute our nation's heroes. It has always been and should continue to be those who put their lives on the line to fight the great battles that keep this nation free. Our armed forces should always be included in that moment. But I'm hopeful that our unarmed forces will be included going forward. Doctors, nurses, paramedics, they're all fighting a mighty battle right now to save as many lives as possible. Grocery store workers, pharmacists, sanitation workers, journalists, they're all keeping our country informed, fed, clean at the risk of their own health. And while we may not feel free at the moment, in the words of one Swiss writer, in health there is freedom. Health is the first of all liberties. So many are making the ultimate sacrifice so that we may be free one day again soon. It really makes our sacrifice of staying home seem, well, pretty easy. We are going nuclear for our Seder this year. Just my nuclear family, that is. My husband, my children, only us at the table. We will Zoom with our extended family before the celebration begins, and the menu will be limited to avoid lingering in the supermarket. God willing, we will all still be in good health, and we will be able to celebrate that freedom at our Seder table next year. Please, listeners, heed the warnings of our health professionals. Please do not let politics threaten your life or the lives of others. Stay home. We will celebrate together one day soon. Passover, World Series, freedom, and life. L'chaim, and happy Pesach. Sefi? Yesterday, I was catching up with a friend from college and found myself referring to our current pandemic crisis as a -a once-in-a-lifetime event. I hope and I pray that I am right about that. But the beauty of our Jewish heritage is that even as we keep our practices relevant for the current age, our tradition stretches back millennia. Even if something is a once in a lifetime event, you can bet that something similar has happened to the Jews before. 
And indeed, whether it's the Spanish flu from 100 years ago or the cholera pandemic nearly 100 years before that or the Black Death of the Middle Ages or even any one of a number of plagues recorded in the Bible, we Jews have been here before. Maybe it's odd, but I find that comforting. And so I was comforted to read an article by my AJC colleague, Rabbi David Rosen, whose dulcet British tones you've heard here on the podcast before. We'll link to the article in the show notes so you can read it yourself. But David traced Jewish religious responses to disease through the ages. He writes about how passages from the books of Vayikra and Bamidbar or Leviticus and Numbers can be understood to be emphasizing the importance of quarantine and about how the Bible also stresses the importance of physical cleanliness in achieving spiritual purity. He continues to the Talmud, which cautions against transporting disease and rules that people should stay home in times of plague. And he compares Rabbi Moshe Isserlis, one of the most important rabbis of the last millennium known by his initials as the Ramah, to a governor like Andrew Cuomo. Because the Ramah wrote that in times of plague, we must do everything we can to avoid getting the infection ourselves or spreading it to others. Further, the Ramah cautions that it is forbidden to rely on miracles to save us. Truly haunting words coming from such a devout man. There are any number of stories that can be told about the way religious Jews are responding to the coronavirus. Shockingly, Israeli health officials are reporting that nearly 40 percent of the population of the Haredi city of Bnei Brak outside of Tel Aviv are infected with the virus. That's 75,000 people. And they are getting sick because many Haredi rabbis are telling them not to heed the public health warnings. But there's another side to the orthodox response. Orthodox authorities from other segments of the population have gone so far as to forbid gathering in a minion or prayer quorum. Today, if you gather in a group of 10 to pray, keeping the most fundamental act of Jewish observance, you are actually committing a sin. And if you host guests at your Passover Seder, one of the most important acts of observing the holiday, you are going against the orders of many of the most respected rabbinic authorities alive today. It's actually in Leviticus, thought of as the book of all the things you're not allowed to do, that the Torah issues a famous dictate, Chai Bahem, you shall live by them, the Jewish laws, meaning you aren't following Jewish law if you are endangering your life or the life of someone else. So this week, this month, this Passover, stay safe, stay healthy, keep others around you healthy too, both physically and emotionally. And you will be honoring our Jewish tradition. Shabbat Shalom and Chag Sameach. Shabbat Shalom. Chag Sameach. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 